Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Sonia. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Life with Graft-Versus-Host Disease, Post-Allergenetic Stem Cell or Bone Marrow Transplantation, and New Treatment Approaches. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as many blood cancer organizations. And it's really um, a pleasure to uh, collaborate with so many groups to help spread the word about this program. And because of that, and because of your interest in the program today, we have over 215 participants on the call today. So there are a lot of you on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, from both rural, frontier, suburban, and urban communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, and Portugal. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And I really want to compliment all of you for being on the call and taking this time. Um, you clearly are a group of information seekers. Today's program is supported by Pharmacyclics, Inc., um, LLC, an AbbVie company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. Um, and we thank them for their support. And we have just wonderful speakers on our program today, really the best of the best. And our first speaker um, is Dr. Um, Mar uh, Dr. Marcus Mapara. And Dr. Mapara is professor of medicine, Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. He's director, adult blood and marrow transplantation, BMT program, Columbia University Irving Medical Center. And Dr. Mapara is going to be addressing a definition of graft-versus-host disease, post-allergenetic stem cell or bone marrow transplantation, understanding how GVHD develops, including finding GVHD early, common signs and symptoms, types of GVHD, both chronic and acute, and current standard of care. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mapara. Yeah, thanks so much, Carolyn, for the kind words and the introduction. And it's a pleasure to participate in, in, in today's call, obviously. I think it is a very important topic to address for a lot of the patients who have undergone uh, uh, allogeneic stem cell transplant. So um, it is always good to um, briefly, when you talk about um, uh, stem cell transplant, to briefly uh, just separate again the, uh, the concepts. And one important uh, issue when you think about organ transplant versus bone marrow transplant is really to think about what type of uh, rejection uh, reactions you have. You know, as you obviously know, in in a solid organ transplant, the primary problem really is that the recipient is uh, rejecting the graft of the donor. Um, and in bone marrow transplant, you really, or in stem cell transplant, you really have both issues. So that, due to the fact that there are differences between the um, the recipient and the donor uh, on an immunogenetic basis. Uh, meaning that there are tissue-type antigens which are uh, distinct between the recipient and the donor, that in bone marrow transplant um, you have both uh, problems. So you have the, the problem that the recipient may reject the donor graft, but what we're actually talking about today is that, which is clinically the most relevant problem, is that the donor cells have the ability to um, attack the recipient, and that's why it's called graft-versus-host disease. And in order to develop graft-versus-host disease, you know, certain requirements have to uh, be met. And one important is that um, <clears throat> the, the recipient is sufficiently immunosuppressed to some extent so that the donor cells can attack, in fact, the recipient. And, uh, and that is exactly, of course, the, the topic that in order to prevent the response of the donor cells against the recipient, you have to uh, employ approaches to... Um, to severely suppress the immune system and thereby then blunt the response of the donor cells against the recipient. Um, but then coming back again to the comparison of bone marrow versus organ transplant, whereas in organ transplant you usually or always have the issue that the patient will require lifelong immunosuppression, bone marrow transplant is kind of particular because in principle it has the possibility that the donor cells 
and the recipient uh, body will at some point learn to live in peace and that this, uh, uh, those responses may subside and that the patient may go off immunosuppression uh, um, in the best case scenario. Obviously, of course, we know that this is not always the case and that you know, this graft-versus-host disease becomes a lingering problem. So the, the underlying problem, really, of the development of graft-versus-host disease is primarily the immunogenetic difference between the donor and the recipient. Um, now, how does GVHD actually develop then? So the immune recognition is one important uh, part, so that the donor cells will attack the recipient because uh, the recipient recognizes the uh, sorry, the donor recognizes the recipient as foreign. Um, however, other factors play a role in that, and one important cofactor is the type of um, conditioning which is given, uh, so the type of chemotherapy, the dose of radiation which is given to um, allow the donor cells to engraft. And this can be either done in what is called a myeloablative uh, setting, meaning that the uh, chemotherapy and the radiation are dosed so highly that they completely eradicate uh, the, um, uh, the the bone marrow of the uh, of the recipient, um, but it could also be achieved with an approach which is more, again, modulating the immune response or the immune system so that you can get the graft in without fully uh, ablating the recipient's hematopoietic system or bone marrow system, and those are called reduced intensity conditioning or uh, even non-myeloablative approaches, um, and. The toxicity associated with that conditioning has been shown to play a role in driving the the cells of the donor out of the the blood system into the the classical organs of uh, GVHD, and so the classical organs of GVHD are the the skin, the liver, and the gut, and so in terms of the the clinical manifestation, so the skin it may manifest itself by a rash and depending on uh, you know on what to what extent and what amount of surface of the body is um, affected by the by that rash and by the donor cells the grading of the gvhd then happens meaning the severity of the gvhd can be graded um, when it attacks the um, the gut it manifests itself usually by uh, development of diarrhea so patients will call if it affects primarily the lower GI tract, so the gastrointestinal tract, the lower GI tract, it will primarily present itself uh, by developing uh, diarrhea. But it can also just attack the uh, the upper gastrointestinal tract, so like the stomach or the uh, upper uh, duodenum or the jejunum. And um, and if it affects the the upper uh, GI tract, it sometimes may only manifest itself with persistent nausea. So that is something which we frequently see in patients that the first sign of uh, involvement of the GI tract, in fact, is uh, is nausea. So skin manifestation is primarily a rash. Um, GI manifestation is either by, you know, severe diarrhea or it can be more mild with, with, uh, with nausea, sometimes vomiting. And if it affects the uh, the liver, it primarily uh, presents itself as a, uh, as a jaundice-type picture, that the patients have increases in their bilirubin due to uh, the donor cells going into the liver and destructing you know, a certain aspect of the liver, which are called bile ducts, and that leads to the, to the increase of the, uh, uh, the bilirubin and gives you the jaundice-like picture. Um, so those are the three classical uh, GVHD organs, liver, gut, and skin. Other organs which have been known to be affected in the setting of this acute GVHD is, uh, also, uh, can also be the lungs, where you have an acute, non-infectious uh, problem with the lungs. So those are really the, the, the acute uh, GVHD manifestations. And when you now think about what is the difference between acute and chronic uh, GVHD, so from a time point, acute happens early and chronic GVHD happens later. But there is now a gray area where both uh, uh, presentations can overlap, in fact. And the acute GVHD is really characterized by the donor cells acutely being basically activated by the recipient's tissue and then directly you know, going into the tissues I just mentioned and attacking them. In contrast, chronic GVHD is considered more of, a, of an immune dysregulation 
and is frequently uh, very similar in presentation to you know very well known uh, autoimmune diseases um, like scleroderma, for example, lupus-like presentations. And this chronic GVHD is uh, something which, in fact, is a long-term process which you know waxes and wanes, and can affect also. Uh, apart from the skin, which I just mentioned, um, the lungs can affect the kidneys. So in multiple organs, you know, any organ which can be uh, prone to develop autoimmunity can be attacked by, by chronic GVHD. So those are the two major presentations of uh, uh, GVHD. Acute, again, usually considered to happen more in the first, you know, 100 days or even before, and chronic happening somewhat later, you know, between 50 and 100 days and later. And uh, in terms of the, um, the quality of life, it's frequently the, the long-term chronic GVHD, which is one of the major challenges uh, in management. And, um, and so that's basically bringing me to, to the last point here, which was given to me to talk about, is what are the, the best approaches of managing it, but also of making the diagnosis of it. So um, as I mentioned, you know, it affects in acute GVHD primarily the three organs, gut, liver, and skin. So the best way of diagnosing it is by getting tissue biopsies, especially in the GI tract. That's the gold standard of doing either a, an endoscopy from below, so a, a, a rectosigmoidoscopy or even a full colonoscopy. And if it presents more uh, with uh, nausea, an upper uh, endoscopy uh, may be helpful. Skin biopsies can be done and also um, uh, biopsies of the liver if needed. Um, and uh, so those uh, three uh, combinations are able then to really usually establish the diagnosis. <clears throat> and um, the um, area which is currently, and perhaps Zach will go into that, which has really elicited a lot of interest now is, uh, is it possible to, to detect GVHD early on? Are there any biomarkers in the blood which could lead us to intervene before the actual uh, uh, GVHD has manifested itself uh, by affecting the, the, the skin, the liver, or the gut? And that is, I think, a very interesting area of research, which is you know, very exciting because it really may prevent full-blown GVHD. And the, the management now of GVHD remains the number one approach really is, is the uh, treatment of GVHD with, uh, with, with steroids. And um, it's always, from a clinical perspective, frequently amazing to see how quickly you know, certain types of GVHD respond. Um, and it's really then the, the challenge of patients not responding to uh, steroids in the first place, which then has opened, again, another area of, of research, what other drugs could be given to uh, the treatment to then get a response or um, what is also frequently a challenge that patient is responding to steroids but it's difficult to withdraw the steroids. So adding on other drugs either because steroids are not working or because it's not possible to withdraw uh, the steroids uh, is I think a very active area of research. And, um, and I'm sure that, that that will go into that in terms of the, the promising uh, approaches. One area which I just want to highlight here is, in my eyes, and which also just received FDA approval, is the use of the so-called JAK-STAT inhibitors, um, uh, which has been shown to be very effective in patients with steroid refractory GVHD. So I think there is really um, a lot of research happening at the moment, which I think is quite promising. Um, and if you compare that to what the situation was 10, 15 years ago, where you really only had steroids, I think now we have two drugs which have the approval for GVHD settings, the one I mentioned, and there's another one called uh, um, Ibrutinib, which works somewhat differently. So I think that definitely there has been a significant uh, improvement in the treatment options now available for patients with GVHD. And I think I now have talked for the 15 minutes, and I will hand over now back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Mapara. That was really wonderful. Just an um, outstanding beginning for this call, setting the stage for it, giving all this information to people, bringing everybody on, on board with what we're talking about and, and what some of the options are. So thank you so much. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A.
And our next speaker is Dr. Zach DeFilippe, or Dr. Zachariah DeFilippe, and um, he's assistant in medicine, blood and bone marrow, transplant program, Massachusetts General Hospital, Cancer Center, instructor in medicine, Harvard Medical School. Um, and Dr. DeFilippe will be addressing new and promising treatment approaches for GVHD, clinical trial updates, how research increases treatment options, key questions to ask your healthcare team about GVHD and follow-up care, and quality of life concerns. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. DeFilippe. I'm to be on the call today. Um, so as was just listed, uh, I'm going to kind of pick up uh, this call with the topic of the ongoing new and promising treatment approaches and really just echoing Dr. Uh, Mapar's uh, sentiment that I think uh, we both and many in the field feel that we're really currently in an exciting time for GVHD uh, therapy um, and approach uh, because I think there's been a lot of um, progress made in recent years um, as Dr. Mapar was just alluding to that previously, you know, it was kind of more of a one-size-fits-all approach to a lot of GVHD clinical scenarios, um, and the treatment options were more limited. Uh, and I think what we're starting to see is that we're better, better understanding the biology of, of GVHD. Um, I think that it's allowing us to uh, better risk stratify patients, which I, which I think is a, an important aspect. Um, and we have more treatment options, which is always a great thing for our patients. Um, so when thinking about new treatments and new approaches, I think I'd actually start with approaches, um, which is there's been a push in the recent years, more in the setting of acute graft-resource disease um, is where it's better established, at least at this point, of using blood biomarkers to stratify our patients who develop graft-resource disease in order to determine maybe different treatment strategies. So um, in the setting of acute graft-resource disease, there are uh, blood tests that can be done, uh, usually with markers uh, that arise uh, from the intestinal tract uh, that can give us a better idea at the time of the diagnosis of graft-resource disease as to whether we think that patient will be more likely to respond to steroid therapy, which is the standard approach, um, or less likely. Uh, that's where the, these biomarkers have been best studied to this point, but there's further research being done on using these same biomarkers in different scenarios early on after transplant. So there's been further studies done, mainly using a large database of patients who've had uh, treatment for graft-resource disease who we've been able to collect blood biomarkers on. And what you can see is that not only can these blood biomarkers be used at the time of diagnosis of acute graft-resource disease, uh, but they seem that they can be used uh, after the treatment. So if, they were, if they're drawn about a month after the treatment, they may be able to indicate who's going to have a better long-term response to their GVHD treatment. And as Dr. Mapar was even alluding to, they can be used to be drawn even before anybody develops graft-resource disease and at least give us an idea of who might be higher risk to develop graft-resource disease before it actually occurs. Um, I think that is always a, a appealing approach because if we could potentially intervene to prevent graft-resource disease in a high-risk patient before it develops, I think that's uh, what many providers and patients would like. Uh, but trying to really identify those patients accurately is still a challenge. There are ongoing trials that are starting to develop this. We have a lot of data that's been collected from previously treated patients, but I think one of the strides that really needs to be made in the upcoming years is really seeing are these approaches feasible moving forward in a prospect prospective manner. The other main development in graft-resource disease, which applies both to the acute graft-resource disease as well as the chronic graft-resource disease, is the introduction of targeted agents into the treatment. So uh, it used to be, uh, and it still remains, that in most scenarios, your first line of therapy, of systemic therapy, uh, is usually some type of corticosteroid, so maybe something like prednisone. Um, and then... Patients were to have 
continued graft-versus-host disease uh, symptoms, um, other agents, other immunosuppressant agents might need to be added on afterwards. The problem with these agents is that although they can help in the treatment of graft-versus-host disease, they often come uh, with more uh, risk for infection, and that's something that we really want to try to shy away from, especially early on after the transplant. Uh, but now there are new, uh, there are at least uh, two agents, uh, as Dr. Mapara has uh, alluded to, that have received FDA approval uh, for the treatment of graft-versus-host disease in, in different settings, and I think that we're all optimistic and hopeful uh, that there'll be more approvals coming down the road. More approvals of medications leads to more treatment options available uh, for our patients. So uh, in the setting, I just want to highlight when it comes to some clinical trial updates, uh, I was going to highlight one study um, in the steroid refractory uh, acute setting, so for acute graft-versus-host disease, uh, Ruxolitinib is a JAK inhibitor, so there's a, uh, there are uh, signaling pathways that JAK's that signaling pathway, and Ruxolitinib is an oral medication that can be used to inhibit uh, the signaling through this pathway, and uh, this medication recently received FDA approval for the treatment of acute graft-versus-host disease that is not responded to steroids. Um, this was based on a smaller study of about 50 patients where you had patients who had usually more severe manifestations of graft-versus-host disease. And in general, there were um, some very nice responses. More than 50% of the patients responded, uh, and some of those responses were seen even in the more severe manifestations. So I think everybody in the field has been very excited by these results. And actually, there is a, uh, a much larger study using the same medication uh, that is ongoing in Europe. Uh, and just yesterday, uh, it was reported that it seems like that study is going to be a positive study, reinforcing uh, the smaller study that we've already completed here in the United States. So uh, I think there are going to be more and more patients who are going to be considered for the use of ruxolitinib in the treatment of their acute graft-versus-host disease. Um, and I think uh, it's been for many patients, a pretty well-tolerated drug, which is another very exciting thing. In the setting of chronic graft-versus-host disease, the first medication that's received FDA approval was a medication called abrutinib, which is another oral medication that uh, affects uh, a signaling pathway uh, uh, of the B cells um, that is can be activated during chronic graft-versus-host disease. Um, uh, Abrutinib's approval has increased uh, our treatment options for patients with chronic graft-versus-host disease, uh, but there are more um, uh, uh, oral medications, oral targeted medications that are coming down the line. This same medication, ruxolitinib, that we just talked about for acute graft-versus-host disease is also being studied for patients who have uh, chronic graft-versus-host disease. And there's a third oral medication uh, right now called KDO25, uh, which is an inhibitor of a signaling pathway called uh, the ROC pathway, uh, which has shown some promise in some early studies uh, with, in patients with steroid refractory chronic graft-versus-host disease, and there's a large study ongoing uh, that is going to assess uh, its ability to treat patients with steroid refractory graft-versus-host disease. And hopefully, these studies will show uh, improvement in graft-versus-host disease symptoms for our patients and lead to further approvals and medications that can be of use um, in this treatment of graft-versus-host disease. Um, what you can kind of get from this theme of the, some of these studies uh, is, is that really these studies allow us to further the field. So we're fortunate now to be in a time when we will have more treatment options for patients with graft-versus-host disease. Uh, but this has really come through both the bench science that's uh, been ongoing in, in labs across the world and to better understand the biology of graft-versus-host disease, and in conjunction with the clinical trials that patients have enrolled upon in order to be able to really see if the biology that we see in the lab uh, really translates to what we could want it for it to uh, accomplish in the clinic. And I think 
an important thing to remember or think about for that I speak about with my patients when it comes to thinking about enrolling in a study for graft-versus-host disease um, is that uh, in the field of bone marrow transplantation, uh, many of our many of the medications that we use or that are now receiving FDA approval are medications that have been developed and tested in other parts of medicine. So, you know, ruxolitinib was a medication that was developed initially for patients with other types of hemolignancies like myelofibrosis, uh, uh, and ibrutinib has been, was developed initially for treatment in patients uh, who have lymphoma, uh, but the biology was very similar to what we see in graft-versus-host disease. Uh, what that means is that uh, these are not medications, these medications are known, their side effects are known, the risks are usually pretty well known, and it's more a, um, uh, a, a investigation to understanding its utility in the setting of, of treatment. Does it actually help treat graft-versus-host disease, uh, and will it develop, will it lead to any other side effects uh, in the setting of a patient who's had a bone marrow transplant? Um, uh, many of the studies um, are also uh, usually single-arm studies, uh, meaning that many patients uh, on a study would actually receive the drug that's being investigated because uh, because of the nature of graft-versus-host disease, many of the uh, that's just the more common uh, trial design right now as compared to placebo-controlled studies. Um, so there's a lot of benefit in the in, in the patients who enroll in studies, there's always benefit for the future patients who come down, that they may have more um, treatment options, but in, because many of the patients on study actually receive drug, there is at least potential that uh, uh, a patient on a study's own graft-versus-host disease symptoms will be improved by their, their participation. So there is a lot uh, to be gained for the community as a whole, but also on a personal level, when patients are able to enroll on uh, studies for graft-versus-host disease. Um, so just in summarizing or summing up a, la a few last points, when it comes to key questions that you may want to think about when you have graft-versus-host disease and things to talk about uh, with, your pa with, with your physicians, one of the main things that I, I think about uh, and I think is um, is how is just mo is the monitoring of symptoms during the taper of immunosuppression. So, uh, still the general paradigm is that treatment is started when patients are having symptoms of graft-versus-host disease, and hopefully those symptoms improve. Uh, but we do want to be able to taper the the treatment, uh, and not to be on the the treatment for for prolonged, prolonged, or for indefinite periods of time. Uh, but we also know that when we are tapering uh, treatments or tapering, you know, tapering prednisone, tapering other immunosuppressants, there's always a chance that the graft-versus-host disease symptoms may flare again. So I think it's very uh, important to speak with your clinicians, pre you know, speak with your treatment providers to make sure that there's good communication, especially around the times of, uh, of treatment tapering, uh, so that if there are recurrent symptoms or things do change, uh, that if any uh, um, further adjustments to the treatment plan need to be made, that they can be made in a timely manner. And then when it comes to quality of life concerns, you know, I think one thing that all clinicians really look to do is try to understand all the ways that um, graft-versus-host disease can affect uh, their patients, not only their patients, but their caregivers and their families. Um, so, as anyone considering going undergoing a bone marrow transplant or have already gone through a bone marrow transplant uh, knows is that it's a um, it, it, it is a very de medically intensive process, um, uh, and, and that being sick, uh, especially for a longer period of time, can take its toll in many different ways. You know. In the context of graft-versus-host disease, we can talk about the symptoms of the graft-versus-host disease itself. Uh, we can talk about the symptoms of the treatment, whether it's any of the, you know, whether it's steroids or any of the other therapies that a patient may be having. And there's also just the emotional emotional stress uh, of chronic illness. You know, chronic graft-versus-host disease, in some cases, the symptoms can last for a very long time. So adjusting to those 
not only the physical symptoms, but the the stress of of continued treatment is something that's important important not only for the patient, but also uh, for every, for all the loved ones of that patient um, who kind of help support. Because we really do know that for uh, everyone going under a, a transplant, it's really a, a team effort, uh, and, and those are things that we really uh, pay a lot of attention to in the clinic. So uh, with that, I'm going to uh, turn it back over to Caroline. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Philippe. That was really excellent, and excellent to also call on the fact that this is a whole um, experience of the person with GVHD and their entire network and family, partners, loved ones, um, family. Um, so um, thank you for doing that um, as well. Um, I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care services, and then we're going to take questions. So please start getting your questions ready. We'll take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get your questions, then I'll actually give you some clues about how to get your questions answered um, at the end of the call as well. Um, so um, I, uh, Cancer Care is a national organization. We provide um, national in the United States, and we provide um, what we call psychosocial support, which means we provide practical and financial assistance, and we have a copay foundation, as well as we provide one-on-one um, -on -one counseling over the telephone or online, and we also have telephone and online support groups. Um, we have at the moment about 138 online support groups, and so they're groups for every for all, so all different ages. Um, so for young adults, um, for middle-aged adults, for older adults, um, for caregivers, um, and of course for people living with GVHD, um, living with many different types of cancers as well. Um, and so um, there's usually an online group for someone. The nice thing that people like about online support groups is that they're not in real time. And so when you think of the time zone differences um, for everybody on this call, um, it really makes a difference if you can post any time of the day or night. They all are professionally facilitated, so you do have actually um, a professional oncology social worker trained um, you know, on, on that uh, all of these uh, groups, listening to them and posting and, and, and following up with everybody. Um, we also do have a Cancer Care for Kids program. It's a program that actually helps more children who live in families where there is um, the experience of cancer in the family itself, and children often and teens don't know exactly how to deal with that, and um, often adults don't really know what to say either, and so it really helps to have a program like this to really help everyone to um, to be talk, to be able to talk about this in a way that's um, helpful to everybody, um, and so um, we also have an older adult program, um, and so we and a young adult program as well, a very active young adult program here. So um, there are many many multiple services. We have a very active website, and we also have lots of publications in addition to these education workshops. Um, and you can access cancer care services by either calling our 800 number 800 number one 800 813-4673, or visiting our website at www.cancercare.org, and you can actually post a question or concern, and that would be, although we are national in scope, we do um, address questions from people from other countries as well, and really help to link you up to services that would be of help to you or provide services for you in any way that we can. Um, so that um, so that is a kind of snapshot of the services you can access from Cancer Care, and they're all free. So now um, we're going to be able to take questions. I'm going to ask Sonia to come back and explain to all of you how to queue up for questions, and we'll let the questions begin. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Abilka C. Your line is now open. Hi, yes, a question. My daughter um, had a bone marrow transplant. Um, she had GVHD, chronic. She passed away, unfortunately. But my question is, and people ask me, she did engraft. And so people ask me, if she engrafted, then how did she get GVHD? Like, I don't know how to answer that question. Like, if she engrafted, we automatically assume, oh, she engrafted, so she should be perfect now. Yeah, no, so I think that comes back... Oh. Should I go ahead? Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah. So, so I think the the um, uh, the question with the GVHD and the engraftment is they are directly linked, right? So basically, in order to get GVHD, you have to have the um, the donor cells basically take hold and engraft in the in the recipient, 
and then they basically go on to attack the, 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 the organs. So if you don't engraft and if the bone marrow gets rejected, the donor cells get rejected, then usually you do not have any type of GVHD. That's in general. So in order to get GVHD, you have to get uh, engraftment usually. And we really are very sorry to hear about your daughter. Um, actually, and actually, um, I'm going to try to call you after the call today so we can talk and see if there's any other help that you can access from cancer care. And uh, Dr. DeFilip, did you want to add anything to that question as well? No, I think that's uh, okay. you know, you know, yeah. It's just uh, as uh, Dr. Kovaro um, was saying that in order to have uh, GVHD, there has to actually be the engraftment. Um, so the engraftment kind of comes first, and then only could the possibility of GVHD only happens after that. Okay, I hope that helps. And um, but we are really sorry about your loss. Really, um, very much so. Thank you. Um, um, and our next question. And our next question comes from CUH. Your line is now open. Yes, I have a question about the dosage used of abrutinib for GVHD. I know it's used to treat several types of lymphoma, and we are now starting to see cardiovascular toxicities at those doses. So I'm curious if you're seeing this with abrutinib in GVHD as well. Thank you for that question. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, right now, the, the, the standard starting dose of uh, ibrutinib in the setting of chronic graft-first host disease has been 420 milligrams um, daily, uh, and, and that's what we have been using. Um, uh, but as you mentioned, uh, in the lymphoma populations, one of the known potential side effects is cardiovascular uh, complications. Uh, you know, a lot of patients who uh, potentially would be at risk for developing uh, heart arrhythmias, so abnormal heartbeats. Um, this is something that thus far, at least in my clinical practice, I have not seen uh, as often, um, and I, don't, I do not believe it was a major readout in the initial smaller study of abrutinib uh, that was uh, led to the FDA approval in the chronic setting. However, uh, it, is, it will be interesting to know uh, that a much larger study of ibrutinib in the treatment of chronic graft-first-host disease as a first-line therapy. So right now it's approved as a second-line therapy for patients who fail steroids or, or have progressive, ster progressive symptoms despite steroids. There's a bigger study being done where it's going to be where, where it has been given in conjunction with steroids up front. And I think with the larger number of patients, it will help give us better data, I think, about how often we're seeing these cardiovascular um, complications. Uh, there is ability to go down on the dosing, uh, but that's something that probably would be, have to be discussed uh, between you know, patient and provider about whether that's something they would like to do. Excellent, thank you. And we have a question for our online participants. Um, or actually, Dr. Mapar, did you want to add anything to that before we go? No, I think I totally agree. I think the other issue which we always, of course, have to kind of uh, um, uh, be aware of with, with abrutinib is that the inter interactions with other medications, and therefore that you have to be really careful if you, for example, have a patient on other uh, drugs uh, like, uh, like antifungal medication, that you then have to be very careful about the, the, the appropriate use of the abrutinib uh, you're using. Thank you. Um, and we have a question in front of our online participants, um, and um, this one will be for Dr. Mapara. There are studies that suggest that using enteral nutrition can decrease um, the risk of GVHD. Do you use enteral nutrition at your facilities, and what are your experiences with it after the transplant? Yeah, so that is a very good uh, question, and we're basically, uh, that is a very, I think in my eyes, exciting area of research where really, you know, the, the type of nutrition, but also, you know, how the gut flora affects uh, GVHD, I think, is really currently exploding that field. And so uh, we are at the moment uh, looking exactly at those uh, recommendations, and there is more and more, for example, data accumulating that the old-fashioned low-microbial uh, diets are probably uh, no longer really that uh, 
uh, that appropriate and that it is better to just follow safe food guidelines. So there is, in fact, uh, um, uh, clear evidence now that uh, modifying your diet will really have an impact on uh, on outcomes and that the, the overly cautious uh, approach with uh, you know, using, you know, basically all the, the the problems which you had with low microbial diets are, may no longer be really actually uh, appropriate at this uh, point in time anymore. And that for GVHD, in fact, I mean, we still, to be honest, if a patient has severe gut GVHD, we still make them NPO. Um, and uh, But however, we'll try to early on really uh, uh, introduce again enteral nutrition again. Awesome. Thank you. And Dr. DeSweep, do you want to add anything to that? Or? No, I, I, I kind of agree. At, at our institution as well, we we really try to encourage patients uh, during the transplant time and after to be getting most of their uh, nutrition with a balanced, healthy diet. Um, and uh, it's only in more severe cases of uh, gut graphosis disease or maybe early on after the transplant if there's issues with mouth sores or mucositis related to some of the treatment that we may consider giving some nutrition by vein, but otherwise we really try to encourage patients to uh, get most of, the, most of their nutrition by mouth. Excellent. Um, thank you. And um, this is a question for Dr. Philippe. It's one of our um, online questions. Um, I had SCT five years ago for MDS, RAEB2, MDS, cured. Mm -hmm. I have been suffering with, with CGVHD for four years. Oncologists say they have tried everything and hold no hope for cure. I have extreme fatigue, eye pain, and skin cancer. How um, to, any, any recommendations or anything, any, anything, to, anything to proceed from here? Um, so again, this is a, uh, obviously a very complicated question. Um, and uh, if you could give some just general guidelines, Dr. DeFilippe, in terms of just, um, uh, um, this person's concerns, and if you could yeah. actually explain some what the what these terms mean in case the whole audience doesn't understand what they are. Sure. So um, it, it sounds, from what I understand, that uh, this is a patient who had uh, a bone marrow disorder and had a um, a allogeneic uh, transplant about five years ago, uh, and uh, it seems that the bone marrow disorder thankfully, uh, seems to be in remission or cured. Um, but unfortunately, uh, this patient seems to have developed more, more significant chronic graphers host disease. Um, and, and as the name alludes to in it being chronic in nature, uh, that sometimes we're able to kind of get the symptoms, uh, our patients can experience that their symptoms get better and, and truly, truly go away. Uh, and then sometimes patients are in an unfortunate situation where the symptoms either don't fully respond or maybe they respond and they get a little bit better and then they get a bit a little bit worse again. Um, uh, I, there are many potential treatments for chronic graphers host disease that are out there. Uh, and um, it seems that my, my, uh, my assumption is that this patient has had a number of treatments uh, and is still having continued symptoms. So uh, this would be a situation to sit down with a provider and kind of really go through um, which treatments they have received until this point and which ones are still out there. Um, and I don't think that it is uh, wrong to, to at least discuss about whether uh, there are other treatments uh, that are available maybe just in clinical trials um, and whether a, your provider might recommend if there are any trials that seem promising and if they're available, um, uh, could you see someone at a center who has a trial open if that was something that was practical uh, for another um, another treatment option if there's really doesn't seem to be many other viable options available at this time. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. Um, and uh, Dr. Mapar, do you wish to add anything to that as well? Yeah, so I think I, I totally, you know, absolutely second what, what uh, Zach just said. I mean, I think in my eyes, you know, the, 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 there are so many options that I think uh, it really would uh, require a careful review of all what has been done 
Um, and um, and I think, to be honest, really um, potentially even getting a second opinion at another uh, site may also be be, be helpful. Um, so I think it really obviously I think we cannot be give any specific recommendations, but I think it will be very helpful to really have um, a careful review of what has been done and then compare to what has been uh, uh, what what is still out there. I mean, for example, what we haven't talked about here at all is um, you know for example the use of extracorporeal photophoresis, which especially for you know chronic GVHD of the of the skin um, is you know is enormously helpful. So so I think there are I think it would require really someone looking at the um, at the uh, current treatments and then look at what is out there either in trials or even a standard of care. Well, that's such an excellent point. Uh, do you want to say a little bit more? Cause people I know are often reluctant to bring up getting a second opinion, and yeah. um, it's, so, it's an issue that comes up a lot in our calls. So if you would say a bit about it, that's really important. For yeah, so I, I, can, I, can, I can only tell you that uh, even with my patients, uh, I do um, – uh, recommend uh, that uh, you know a second opinion um, is helpful, and uh, I have myself. I mean, I think one of the the, the, the biggest centers for uh, chronic GVHD is the the center by you know from Dr. Pavletic at the NIH, um, and um, and they really within two days they get a full workup of the entire organ system. Um, and so I think I would put really a big plug in here of getting second opinions, especially for chronic GVHD. And that would be at the National Institute of Health. Um, exactly, yes, yes. To, and they would contact at the NIH. The, yes. So www.gov or. Um, yeah, to be honest, I don't have the the um, yeah. the website there, but it's if you go NIH. Uh, um, I can I can give you I can give you and I can help you later on to get to to give you that that link how to get in touch touch with okay, them. Excellent. And uh, but also we do often recommend uh, at the end of the call if our people do have questions answered that the um, that. Um, uh, cancer, I'm sorry, it's cancer.gov. They actually do have, um, they they actually do have, um, the NCI does have a tremendous database with NCI. They have their link together, but we'll give you, Dr. Mapar will give us that exact database, you'll, that exact um, link um, so that you'll have that. Um, and that's really important to be aware of. Um, and excellent. Thank you so much. Um, um, and we now have another question on the telephone. Yes. Thank you. And our next question comes from De William W. Your line is now open. Yes, thank you. I, I wonder if uh, either of the doctors or both can elaborate on some of the adverse events which we might encounter with the use of ruxolitinib. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I can I can go first. I mean the uh, the ruxolitinib. I think one of the the um, when you look how it was basically developed, right? It was developed as a drug which inhibits a, an important pathway which is relevant also for viral uh, control. So in, in addition, it was developed as a drug to uh, treat a certain disorder of the bone marrow, which is called myelofibrosis. And so the side effects are, in my eyes, which are the most relevant ones, are uh, that there may be issues with uh, impairing the ability of the immune system to deal with certain viral infections. Um, and uh, the other is, and that's something which we are seeing quite frequently, are um, uh, uh, reduction in uh, the blood count, so thrombocytopenia, um, and overall drop in their in the hematopoietic cell numbers. So these are, in my eyes, the two key uh, components. Otherwise, um, I think it has been so far, and I've been using it, uh, you know, quite a bit, um, it has been very well tolerated. And Dr. DeWitt, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think the main um, um, the main issues are the blood counts. Uh, I, I, you know, um, you know, I think one thing that's hard to assess a little bit in the setting of Graffers-Host disease uh, treatment is that sometimes the symptoms from the medication overlap with some of the symptoms that we would expect in Graffers-Host disease patients. So, you know, there have been infections seen with patients who are on ruxolitinib, but is that how much is that really related to ruxolitinib versus how much is that related to the patient in it, who has a compromised immune system in the setting of graft-versus-host disease in the first place? Um, so those, so those are some of the things that we've seen, and there are adjustments that can be made, especially for the blood counts, um, to the dosing in order to make uh, the medication more tolerable. Uh, but in general, it's been a medication that's been uh, pretty well tolerated by the patients that we've used it with at our institution. Thank you. And um, 
And we have another question from one of our uh, um, online participants. Um, and um, I'll start with Dr. DeFilippe. Um, how do I find an ophthalmologist who has experience dealing with people with GVHD? Um, so that is a great question. Uh, so I, the, the route that I would probably recommend is to start with your bone marrow transplant physicians. Um, and uh, depending on how uh, the institution and the practice is uh, at the clinic that you go to, uh, there's often a ophthalmologist that uh, is the common person that is uh, that patients with GVHD are referred to, and that's how they would build up that expertise. Uh, the question would become if you happen to be uh, receiving your care in, in an area where there is a, um, a smaller program and maybe there's not one designated person, uh, then um, it may be a matter of, uh, similar to what we talked about in getting a second opinion, uh, if it was feasible to be able to go somewhere where there is an ophthalmologist who sees m many graft-versus-host disease patients and then maybe getting a one-time evaluation as a, uh, or an evaluation with recommendations that can be followed up uh, closer to home. Uh, so my, my rec take-home recommendation would be start that conversation with your bone marrow transplant team and see if they have somebody that they can refer you to. Yeah, that's excellent. Thank you. Thanks. Um, and uh, Dr. Mappara, do you want to add anything to that? or? Uh, absolutely. I, mean, I think you know you, there, every center usually will have their go-to person for um, for every in every disease, in fact, for chronic GVHD, be it for skin, be it for lungs. Um, and if you know you reach the limits there, I mean, I think then again, second opinions and, and referrals outside, I think, are the next step. Excellent. Thank you. And we have another question in front of our online participants. Um, so um, I was late to the call. Uh, Dr. Mappara, I'll have you just. I was late to the call, so this may have been answered previously. I'm wondering what percent of patients who receive an allogenetic transplant get GVHD? Yeah, and so it depends, of course, on, on the type of GVHD we're talking about. But, I mean, in general terms, you can think about, uh, and again, this also depends on how you do the transplant. But roughly speaking, you could argue that chronic GVHD happens in the range of 40%. And um, uh, 40, 50 percent, and acute GVHD in the ranges again with a different grading of you know from severe to less severe, you know in the range from probably like 30 percentage. Excellent, thank you. Um, and we have um, another question from one of our online participants. Um, So the, um, this question for Dr. DeFilippe, um, the immunosuppressant medication has caused me to become very tired. How can I manage it? Um, so there are many symptoms that can kind of arise during the time of the treatment of Graffer's-Host disease. Um, and uh, some of the symptoms that arise uh, are more what I would say specific, and then some of the symptoms that can arise can be a little more general. And I think fatigue is something that we almost expect of many of our patients to experience, uh, and, I, and, I, and I think many do. Um, the issue is to what degree. Um, and then another kind of aspect to that is, is there any specific underlying cause that we can identify outside of the medication. What I mean by that is that, uh, you know, sometimes we, you know, we've been talking a little bit about ruxolitinib and that it can make your blood count slow. So one question to be asked if, you've, if you were on a medication like ruxolitinib, it seems like you may be on a, another type of uh, immunosuppressant, but if you were on a medication like ruxolitinib or others, is, uh, is this making you anemic or are you, is your hemoglobin low? And maybe that's the reason that you were fatigued. I think doing a, you know, some uh, inquiry into seeing if there is a correctable reason that you may be feeling fatigued outside of the medication. However, a lot of times we are in a situation where um, uh, the only way to really know if, it, if it's truly related to the medication would be to stop that medication uh, and see if the fatigue approves. Uh, 
However, if that medication has really been started to treat chronic graft-for-host disease symptoms, there's always the worry that the, the chronic graft-for-host disease symptoms can be uh, can start to become uh, more significant. So, uh, you know, my recommendation would be just to make sure that uh, the blood counts have been checked, to make sure there's no other reason to uh, to explain the fatigue. If the fatigue is more mild, it, it may be something that you choose to try to stay on the medication for and see if it improves. Uh, but if it's more, if it really is uh, more severe and unbearable, maybe that agent is is not agreeing with you and your body, uh, and it would be time to kind of sit down with your provider uh, and look at the other treatment options to see if there's another that might uh, uh, not result in the same fatigue. Thank you. Excellent. Um, and Dr. Mapar, do you want to add anything? To no, that? I totally agree. So I think there's not a whole lot to add here. Okay, excellent. And we'll have one last late-breaking um, question from our online participants. Um, and the question is, um, so this is um, uh, for Dr. Mapara. If the transplant has become well-established in my body, will GVHD go away? So uh, yes. So therefore, I think the, um, um, the, the, the as, I, as I mentioned, right there is the the the. Theoretical and what we also actually see, right, potential that the, the cells from the donor will actually truly develop real what is called immunological tolerance, that they will no longer attack the recipient um, but still be able to fight infections. So there is a good chance that um, uh, GBHD, in fact, does go away um, uh, after, you know, after the appropriate treatment. Um, and so there is a possibility, absolutely, yes. And Dr. DeFilippe, do you want to add anything to that? Um, no, I think that, that that's that's true. It's just sometimes these things do take time, um, and, and uh, time is requires patience, and that can sometimes be very difficult. But uh, we do sometimes see that with longer periods of time, that acclimation uh, allows for some of the GVHD symptoms to dissipate. And just as a concluding note from each of you, is there anything that you'd like people to really take away from this call that is really that you really would like them to actually um, oh, just really know that's really, yeah. although everything on the call was important, anything in particular, um, Dr. Yes. Mappara, do you want to go for us? Yeah, so I wanted to basically really, uh, I think, highlight something which Zach said. I think in my eyes, GBH, a bone marrow transplant would not have been, would not be available now without clinical research. Um, and uh, I think the the, uh, the progress we have made now also in, in GVHD has been due to the translation of bench side results to clinical trials. So therefore, I think there's no field where there has been so quick trans such a quick translation from um, preclinical work into the clinical setting. So therefore, in my eyes. Con um, really participation in clinical research in Mars is really truly, truly relevant, especially in this field. Excellent. Thank you. And, and Dr. DeFilippe? Yes, uh, and, and just to continue that thought, you know, everyone who is involved in the bone marrow transplant field uh, is really out with a mission to help cure patients of their cancers, of their diseases, and when we have patients who develop graft-for-host disease, um, we really have put all of our efforts into trying to come up with new treatments, and I think we're really excited with the progress that we've made and continue to make, and I just think that everybody on the call should know uh, that we we do everything we do for you. Um, so we're, we're going to keep pushing forward, uh, and we appreciate uh, everybody's interest in the call and um, we hope to be continuing to find new treatments uh, and new ways to support our patients after transplant. Thank you very much, and really wonderful. And I actually want to thank both of our speakers. You've really been, I really, I have to say, just amazing, both in terms of expertise and also in the way that you speak to our participants on the call today. It's actually been quite amazing. Um, we've done a few of these calls before, but I have to say this has probably been the best ever, um, and I just want to thank our speakers. I also want to thank our participants for asking such great questions. Um, 
I want to ask, thank our participants for asking such great questions as well, because I think your questions really always enhance, of course, the program um, and, and make it um, so much better. Um, and um, as we conclude the call today, I would not want anyone to feel that you're alone in coping with um, uh, your in coping with, um, GDHD. Um, I want you to now know that you're part of this community of support, and we're all here to help you. Um, and uh, so I want to thank you for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. Anyway, now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.